That's how it goes. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, it really is great to be here, <clears throat> and thank you for your welcome. Now, it's always dangerous to open the Bible, you know that, don't you? Um, because it might tell us something we've got to do. So let's ask uh, the Lord's help, shall we, as we open our Bibles together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've shown us um, how we should live, what we should believe, how we should behave. And you've given us the help of your Holy Spirit to do so. And we just pray, Father, as we open your word together, that um, you will help us to understand what we're reading and give us the strength to do what we need to do. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Now, I can't remember the last time I got a proper letter. I don't mean the brown ones with On Her Majesty's Service. I mean, when you put them to one side because they're probably a bill or something. And I don't mean the one from the People's Postcode Lottery because, frankly, you know, it's not worth it. Whatever it promises, I'm not going to live long enough to spend it anyway. No, I mean a proper letter. You know, one that somebody's written, you know? You remember those days? Written on a piece of paper, folded it, put it in an envelope, licked up the envelope, put a stamp on it, took it to the post box, posted it, and it reached me. Do you remember that sort? Well, as most messages now are 160 characters long, that includes spaces and emojis. Is that how you say it? Emojis, yeah. And um, they come via a sort of message via your phone. You know, every now and then, or in the case of my granddaughters, about every minute, they get a message. But <clears throat> those things weren't invented when the last book of our Bible was written. And when John, the old man who'd followed Jesus all of his life, is banished to an island all on his own, just for trusting Christ... And yet the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, appears to him and says, I want you to write seven letters and a few other things. And he settles to do it. Of course, the background to these letters, if you've got your Bibles, is in chapter one of Revelation. Now, Revelation is an easy book to find. You just go to the very end and come backwards a little bit. Revelation chapter one, let me remind you, tells us the background to John writing these seven letters. And I'm in chapter 1, verses 9 to 17. 
where John says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. There's John. It's worse than being sent to the Isle of Man. He's on an island where there's hardly anybody else there, no friends, and he's there because he loves Jesus, and he's old, he's going to die there. He says, I'm on this island because of following Jesus. Verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He couldn't miss this, saying, verse 11, write what you see in a book, Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, verse 12. And on turning, I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Wow! Scary! Exactly. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though one dead. Well, he would, wouldn't he, after seeing all that lot? But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades right there for the things that you have seen. Now, who is the one who's the first and the last, the one who died and rose again and who lives forever? This is the Lord Jesus Christ talking to John. There's no mistaking that. He says, write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So write what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. As for the mystery of the seven stars, I'm glad he explains this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John is told to write seven letters to seven churches. Now they were real churches with real people in a real place and they weren't the only churches. He's writing probably about 90 AD, so about 60 years after Jesus dies and rises again and goes to heaven. And there were quite a lot of churches, but he's writing to seven of them because they're typical of the churches of the time. And that tells us straight away that he's not just writing to them, but he's writing to typical churches in every age. That's good, isn't it? Because we're not there. We're here. And so Jesus tells John he's writing to churches like these and John is telling us what Jesus says to them, he says to us. So there's something here for us this morning. Well, I'm glad about that, otherwise you deserve to walk out. There's something here for us this morning, so hang on in there, please. He wrote to seven churches, they're very different. 
He writes something good about the churches, all of them except for one. He writes about big problems in all of them except for two. One of them's lost their first love of Jesus. One of them's fallen into immorality. One of them um, has fallen um, into false teaching. And one of them, he says, he's dead. Very different churches. And one of them, shockingly, he says, you're like drinking lukewarm tea, and what do you want to do with lukewarm tea? You want to spit it out. These are strong letters. But we've picked one of the letters. In fact, we've picked the shortest, and we've picked one where he says nothing bad about this lovely, lovely church, and we're going to go there this morning. Of course, the church isn't a building. It's people, and the letters that were meant for the church here in Smyrna are meant also for us. We're in chapter 2 and verses 8 to 11. Actually, you could have them up. You have already. Great. This guy's ahead of me. And you can follow that if you don't want to look at me. It might be better if you do. We're in chapter 2 and verses 8 and 11. And we're looking just at one of these letters this morning, the letter to the church in a place called Smyrna, which now is southern Turkey. So if you've gone on your holidays to Turkey, you might have been near this place. And we're in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. We're going to ask three simple questions. That's all I'm doing this morning. Who wrote it? Who was the writer? Who were the readers? And what was the purpose of this letter? Who wrote this letter? Who read this letter and what was the purpose of what was written in this letter? Now, we've already said that John is writing down letters that he claims to have come from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who a letter comes from is very important. Do you agree? If it comes on a Majesty's service, well, that might be important. We'll check later. If it comes from postcode lottery, it could be important. It almost certainly isn't. But if it comes to me from the chief constable of Merseyside Police... I need to pay attention. Do you agree? Because in my case, it almost certainly means that one of his lovely cameras has picked me up on the Ford Road yet again. It's got my number plate really clearly, even though it was dirty, and he's going to send me an invitation to pay him some money. I need to deal with it, right? And obviously, as John writes these letters, he's writing letters that have been given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in each of the seven letters, identifies himself as the writer. And so if you're a Christian this morning, you need to take this seriously. What does he say about himself? In each of the letters, he says something slightly different about himself. So in this letter, look at verse 8, he says, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. But if you look at some of the other letters, he says, the words of him who has the sharp-edged sword. You should listen to that one. Or verse 18, the words of him who has eyes like a flame of fire. Or verse um, chapter 3, he says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. Or the last one, verse 14 of chapter 3, the words of the Amen, the faithful witness. So he's telling them something about himself which will help them understand why they should listen to the letter. No, we don't write letters like that. We put our name at the end. But Jesus puts his name at the beginning, and in this letter to this church, he says, the words of the first and last who died and who came to life. The words of the first and the last. Well, that reminds us, doesn't it, of John when he writes his gospel. The very beginning of John's Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, another name for Jesus, 
And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Jesus was there at the beginning. Do you believe that? Do you understand that? Because Jesus is God, he didn't just appear one Christmas. He was there from the beginning. We'll put the beginning here. But according to John here, in Jesus' letter, Jesus will be there at the end. In fact, the end of our world will not come until Jesus says so. That's a comfort when you hear some of the stuff which our leaders are talking about and doing. Jesus is there at the beginning. Jesus will be there at the end. That's what Jesus is saying to this church. The words of the first and the last the description would have been a huge reminder to this church that what they were going through at their time was part of a big picture in which Jesus was in control. If Jesus is there at the beginning and Jesus is there at the end, nothing that is happening in this church or this church is outside of his control. Yeah? They're already suffering, this church, as we shall see, and soon will suffer a great deal more. But Jesus is reminding them, by the title he gives himself, that all history is his story. His story. He's not just watching it happen. Now that's hard to grasp sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to grasp in our lives sometimes, if you're a Christian, that my story is a story that Jesus is involved in every part of it, but hang on in there. Because when we let ourselves forget that God is almighty, the God that brought this world into existence, that sustains this world, and the God who will bring the world to an end in his timing, when we forget that, we're in big trouble, aren't we? It means I've just got to muddle through the difficulties of my life. And as Mark said, we're not very good at that. It means that uh, when we feel alone or insignificant, there's no one to remind us that we're made by God and for God and we can find our meaning and purpose only in God if we think that God is not at the beginning and at the end. But Jesus says more in verse 8. He says, The word, the first and the last, who died and came to life. He says, it was me who came and lived the life you should have lived and can't, who died and who rose again. And therefore, you can listen confidently to my words. And someone in Smyrna might be saying, look, I'm reading this letter, but how do I really know that God cares? How do I really know that when he's writing to me, he actually cares about our church and our situation? Jesus says, you know that I care because I came and lived and died and rose again. Writing to the Romans, Paul said much later on, he says, God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know that God loves us and cares for us as Christians? Because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know. And of course, John says in his gospel, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. That's how we know how much God cares. And you might not be a Christian this morning. You might be thinking, I really can't click into all of this but you need to know that God cares, and you can know because of Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, he didn't just come to set us an example or to set us a standard or to tell us some nice stories. He came to show you that he really cared 
So the writer, the one who died and came to life, the one who is the first and the last. And this will prove, just this, this first verse, will prove an enormous comfort to this church in Smyrna. Second, I told you there are only three points. We're on the second one already. Second, who are the readers? Well, verse 9 tells us they are a church in trouble. I know your afflictions. I know your tribulation. Now, this isn't just a little local difficulty they're having. Tribulation means serious trouble, a crushing burden. Can you feel it? This church was being crushed. The life was being crushed out of it. That's what it means. And it was being crushed out of it in many ways. He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty. They're living in poverty. Now, in AD 90, Christians were living in poverty because often they'd lose their jobs if they followed Christ. They would be ostracized. They, they would be excluded from the social life of society if they were Christians. And so they weren't in poverty, you know, we're not very popular, we're not very great. They were in poverty. We don't know where the next meal's coming from. Real poverty. He says they're in trouble. They're living in poverty. And they're slandered. And the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're being called names. Now, when you go out here later on, you might bump into somebody. You say, oh, where have you been? You say, oh, I've been to church. You might get a sneer. And that probably, probably is all you'll get. But in some countries, right this morning, and in some places in our country, to follow Jesus Christ, you get more than a sneer. In some countries, even this morning, in parts of, in much of China, you can't even worship openly. In too many places in our world, in parts of Africa, if you choose to worship Jesus Christ this morning, your life is in danger, not slander, but death. This church in Smyrna knew that. They were name-called for being Christians. Of course, the word Christian originally was used as a term of abuse. You know, it was spat out, Christian. Can you feel it? It was a term of abuse. And worst of all, this slander came from self, the self-righteous religious elite of their day. Look at it. Those who say they're Jews, which meant the people of God, and they're not, but they're a synagogue of Satan. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You know, the devil's church. That's pretty strong. But it was true. So this church is in trouble. They're living in poverty. They slandered. They have a crushing burden. And verse 10 this letter from Jesus says, it's going to get worse. Verse 10, don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Folk in Smyrna, your life is going to get worse. The devil's after you. Prison is promised for you and death appears to be a certainty for some of you. All the seven letters are in the page of my Bible that's open here, all of the seven. And all of these churches were going to have trouble. They were all going to have trouble of one sort or another. 
And of course, sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves, don't we? We make choices in life that bring trouble. We do things to ourselves or to other people that bring trouble. I'm not talking about that sort of trouble. I'm talking about the trouble that came to this church about whom the Lord Jesus said nothing bad. Yeah. But trouble came from outside. Now, I do hope when you became a Christian, no one gave you the lie that your life would become easy. <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us that, does it? Because it says when you become a Christian, you make an enemy. Well, in fact, you make three enemies. The world, people out there who will sneer at you, people who don't understand what it means to seek to love Christ, all they'll do is find your faults and tell you about them as often as they can and call you a hypocrite. Right? The world is against you. Right? But not only that, the flesh, we're against ourselves. You know, the old bit of us that says, I just want to do what I want to do. I want to please myself, like we saw in the children's story. I want the crown on my head. The flesh and that constant battle. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. On the one hand, of wanting to serve Jesus and love him and do what he says... And the other saying, it's just too hard. It's, it's just too much of a pull. My own, my own wants and desires are just too strong and are pulling the other way. That's the second enemy. And the third one that the church in Smyrna was going to find out all about is the devil. Now, there's nothing funny about the devil. In fact, of course, in, in the New Testament, he's described as a ravenous, roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, there's nothing funny about a ravenous, roaring lion. And so the devil to these people is their personal enemy who's out to get these faithful Christians in Smyrna and, according to Jesus, is out to get you too. When I was a kid, we used to sing... I'm sure we don't. We haven't sung it for years. We used to sing, "Onward, Christian soldiers, marching unto war, with the cross of Jesus going on before." A sort of military song. We don't sing that sort of song much now, but the Bible tells us that we need the armor of God. We need the helmet of salvation. We need the sword of the Spirit. We need the shield of faith. We need protection because if you're a Christian this morning, you're in a battle, right? And so were these people. And if you're thinking, oh, I'm not really sure what you're talking about, this battle business. Maybe it's because you're not a Christian. You, you don't have the world and the flesh and the devil as your enemy because actually in your heart of hearts, they're your friends. You're okay without God on the throne. But not these people. They have a battle on and sometimes, of course, as I say, we bring trouble on ourselves, but the church here is in a battle to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus and desperately needs to know that this battle is not in vain. And this church needs to know that too. And the church across the road in Halewood needs to know that too. Is this battle not in vain? Are we wasting our time to wake up in the morning and say, Lord Jesus, help me to live this day to your praise and not mine? Are we wasting our time to come and gather here with a group of ordinary people and say, 
Lord Jesus, I want to know how you want me to live. I want, I want to know how my life should be spent, who I should speak to, what I should do, what the choices that I should make. Is that just a waste of time? Is it just all too difficult? Would it be much easier to say, look, there's nothing there, and go out and do our own thing? Don't you think this church needed an answer to that question? <laughs> I think so. This is the shortest letter of all the letters that Jesus wrote to these seven typical churches. But it's the most positive because Jesus knew that these people needed some encouragement and some consolation and some comfort in their situation. Things are going to get worse, he says, but hang on in there. Well, hang on in there for us too. Because the third point is this. The letter has a purpose. Can this letter from the Lord Jesus offer any comfort and hope to this struggling church? And the answer is a massive yes. Look at verse 9. He says, you are rich. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. They're rich in the things that matter. And if you're a Christian this morning, that is the comfort to you. You're rich in the things that matter. Remember when Jesus talked about the rich fool? He was doing so well in life. He was a farmer, so he pulled down his barns, he built bigger barns. If he was a businessman, he pulled down his factory and built bigger sheds, bigger and bigger and bigger. And soon he had all his sheds built and all his sheds were full. And Jesus said, you're a fool. Tonight you die. What happens to all the stuff? You leave it all behind. Because he was not rich towards God. There's no point in being rich unless we're rich towards God. Because this life will pass so very quickly, won't it? And you remember when Jesus talked, um, the rich young ruler came to him. He was depending on his wealth. He had so much, but he just wanted to know what that secret last ingredient was to be sure of going to heaven. And Jesus said, the only thing you've got, the one thing that you've got to do is just sell what you've got, give it to the poor and follow me. Your riches won't get you to heaven. This church had a reputation for being poor, but the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, said they were rich in the things that mattered. What other comforts does Jesus offer? Do not fear. <laughs> Easy to say that. Has Jesus got the right to say to this church, do not fear? Have you ever been on one of those really big aeroplanes, the sort you think, I don't know how they get off the ground? I went on one of them last year and we were up in the air. It was the middle of the night. It was a bad time when all your worst fears come to your mind, you know. And then the air, the, there was noises, there was lightning. The aeroplane started rocking. The sign went up, put your seatbelts back on. And then the aeroplane appeared to drop about 1,000 feet. Have you ever been on one of those? Can you imagine if I turned around in my seat and said to 400 other people, don't, don't worry, that's all right. They say, who are you? Shut up. And rightly so. But if the man sitting next to me said, don't worry, don't fear, I'm an engineer, I helped make this plane, I've flown in it hundreds of times, it's made to put up with this, it's 
not a problem. The Lord Jesus says to this struggling, troubled church, do not fear, and he has the right to say that. Do not fear what you're going to suffer, because Jesus suffered more than they'll ever suffer. Do not fear, because when I came and lived and died and rose again, I went through more than you will ever have to go through, and therefore you can trust me. Remember what Jesus said in John's Gospel to his disciples? They were terrified when he said to them, I'm going to die. He said, don't fear. I'm going somewhere to a place, and I will take you to be with me. When Jesus says, do not fear, we can trust his word. What else does he say? Hebrews says, we don't put our trust in someone who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way was tempted like us. Do not fear. But verse 10, is it really worth it? These people in Smyrna might have been saying that. Is it really worth it? You bet it is. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Here's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ who himself was faithful unto death. Do you get it? What Jesus is saying, he has done, he's been there. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown. The crown of what? The crown of life. Now that crown was the crown that you would get, really. It was a wreath that everybody would get when they competed in the games. It was more like a marathon badge. If you've done a marathon, I haven't. If you've done a marathon, some of you are fit people. Everybody gets the badge if they finish. Is that right? Well, that's the crown of life. Everyone gets the crown if they finish. And if you're a Christian, you'll get it too. And it's a crown of life. It's the crown of life to people who are facing death the one who conquers, verse 11, will not be hurt by the second death. Here's another promise to these people. Jesus reminds these Christians under their crushing burden that there's something worse than dying. And that's dying twice. You think, oh, what's the second death bit? Well, we're all going to die once. I'm afraid that's the one-in-one one statistic. But Jesus is reminding them that the second death will be when those who don't trust in him are parted from the God who made them forever. That's the second death. That's the eternal separation from God. And he says in verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's a promise. There's a promise to these people. But if you don't remember anything else in this morning, I want you to remember verse 9. Two words. This won't be hard. You know, sometimes people speak for 25, 30 minutes and they think you're going to remember every word they've said. Well, I'm not expecting that this morning, but I would invite you to look at verse 9 and remember two words. What does Jesus say? He says in verse 9 to this struggling church in Smyrna, I know. And he says to every other church in these letters, verse 13, I know. Verse 19, I know. Chapter 3, verse 2, I know. Chapter 3, verse 8, I know. Chapter 3, verse 15, I know. Jesus knows what this church, these men and women in this ordinary place were going through. 
And Jesus knows what his people are going through here today. He knows. It's a great mistake, isn't it, to suppose that Jesus is sat on a throne on some cloud somewhere looking down. I'll tell you why it's a mistake. It's in our verses. Chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, that's the churches, and in the midst of the lampstands, one. Jesus is in the middle of his church. He tells this struggling church. And in chapter 2, verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks amongst the seven churches, amongst the lampstands. Jesus is in amongst his church, and he walks amongst his church by his Holy Spirit. I know. We've heard a lot about the corona, what's it called? The coronavirus in Wuhan, is it, in China? So this week, the Foreign Office said, we're going to have a great big aeroplane, and we're going to bring the Brits back to Britain, 120 or 30 of them. They can come back to Britain, and they can recover on Merseyside. That's kind of them. And we heard all that. And then a message came from Wuhan saying, we haven't even reached the airport yet. The aeroplane's not there, and they're not going to let us all on because some of us uh, have partners who are not British. Who was right? The Foreign Office in London or the people out there where it was happening? The answer's obvious. The people out there where it was happening knew what was happening, not the people sitting in the Foreign Office in London. And so when you feel that you're battling against the world, the flesh and the devil, please remember this morning what Jesus says to these churches. I know I'm standing in your midst. I'm walking in your midst. I know what you're going through. Did this stop their poverty? No. Did this stop the slander? No. Did it stop their imprisonment and death? No. But what it did was it gave them the courage and the faithfulness to persevere. Yeah? Imagine settling down to watch Match of the Day. Not last night, because it was 4-0, so this is the wrong illustration. But imagine settling down to watch Match of the Day, but some unkind person has slipped you the score, and you're trying to forget it and watch the match as though you don't know the score. So you're watching the match, and they score first. Oh, dear. And they score again, so it's 2-0, right? But then you, you score a couple of goals, and it's 2 all. but straight after half-time, nothing. 2-all, 2-all. The second half is really tough, really tough, really tough. And you're thinking, what is going to happen? You know, it's 2-all. What's going to happen at the end? And just before the end of ordinary time, you think they're going to score, but they don't, and you're into four minutes of injury time. And you think, oh, no, two all, two all. We've got four minutes of injury time. And then suddenly you remember what the score is because you knew it all along, but you'd forgotten. And you sit back on your seat and think, oh, I know we're going to win. I'm just waiting for that magic goal that's going to clinch our victory. And it comes. That's exactly what this letter's about. It's exactly, in fact, what the book of Revelation's about. It's telling the, the, the troubled Christians who are fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
It's telling them the end story. Jesus wins. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you're struggling in your lives, the church in Smyrna was told, we can trust that he will bring the victory. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some of you say, well, I'm not really sure if I'm a Christian. I'm not really sure if this applies to me. All I can say is you can be. If the Jesus who came and lived the life I should live but can't and died the death I deserve to die but needn't and rose again in the power of an endless life and is met within his church, says he knows our minds and our hearts. He knows our deeds and our hopes and fears. He knows that of his people. He can know that of you too. And if you're a Christian, then know this this morning. As the church in Smyrna knew it, Jesus Christ knows where you are at. He knows what you're struggling with. He won't be shocked if you tell him. He knows where your heart is, what you really love. He won't be surprised to hear it. He knows your fears of the future and he will promise to go there with you. Is that good news? How amazing it is that we ordinary people have put our weak faith in a strong saviour can be so incredibly safe. Make sure you are. Make sure you are. We're going to sing a great song. I believe you're good at singing this one. I hope you are because it's got a, it's got a rousing chorus.